Good morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Calvary, and it's an honor to be able to open the Word of God together and to be able to worship on a morning like this. That was a great time of just taking communion together and worshiping, and now we get to do what I love to do and open the Word of God. Uh, if you have your journals for the James series, you can open them up. We're continuing in the book of James, and we're going to be in verses 18 to 21. If you don't have a James journal, I think we still have some, and so you can feel free to grab one of those or grab one after the service. Uh, but we're going to be in James 1:18 to 21. In 2020, the men at Calvary went on a men's retreat, and it was in March of 2020. So there's some significant things that were going to happen soon after that. It was kind of our last big gathering that we were able to have before a lot of life changed. And while we were on that gathering, one of the things that we were going through the on the retreat was the book of James. And there was a time for question and answer where men were able to write in questions that they had and submit those questions. And then the, some of the pastors on staff were going to answer those questions and try and group them together and think through what are the major topics to address that these men are wanting to hear about. And I want you to guess for a moment, what do you think was the major category? Once all those questions were grouped together, what do you think was the major category of questions that men were wanting to know? Trials. Dealing with anger. Dealing with anger. Okay, well, you got it. That, that's, that's right there. So it was dealing with anger. So we have some of uh, the wisdom probably from men's ministry. Guess you were, might have been around there too, but the, going with the topic today, it was how do I deal with my anger? How do I deal with the frustration that I experience? Maybe in my job, I'm, I'm dealing with frustration and anger in my job circumstances. How do I deal with the anger that I'm experiencing in my family, with my spouse, with my friends? How do I deal with the frustration of what life is? I think it's fascinating that that question came up in March of 2020, because how many opportunities since then have there been to be angry? How many trials and difficulties have there been? I mean, on the most massive geopolitical levels to the small levels, maybe being stuck at home with family, or being isolated and maybe angry with God. Why am I in this circumstance? So many things that have happened in the last two years. And this is obviously not just a problem for the men. It's a problem for men and women and children. I mean, from a young age, we know that anger is a, is a reality, something we deal with. And what I love about the book of James is that the book of James is a book that deals with the true trials and difficulties and temptations that we're facing. It, James is a book of practical wisdom for the Christian life. How do you live as a Christian in this world in the midst of the challenges and difficulties you're going through? James beautifully addresses those issues. And so as we jump into James uh, 1, 19 to 20, immediately James is going to be picking up on this topic of anger and listening to God. So James 1, 19 to 20 says this. It says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now in your booklet, you might just want to underline those words. It's quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. These are the things that James is calling us to do. This is how he's calling us to live. Now, these are things that he's telling us to do. This, this 
quick to hear, uh, quick to hear is likely a reference to hearing wisdom and hearing from God. In the midst of trials, difficulty, temptations you might be going through, we want to be quick to hear. And so the context of James 1, especially as we get to the end, he's talking a lot about hearing the word of God, hearing God's truth, hearing his wisdom and learning from him. But the reality is that this is not our natural tendency to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I'd say our natural tendency is, is something more like this, and you could write it on your booklet if you find this helpful. My natural tendency would probably be to be slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to become angry. Slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to become angry. Because in a lot of ways, it's just easier it's easier to not be in a place of listening. It's easier in the busyness, in, in the chaos of life, to not be in a position where we're ready to hear from God. We're ready to hear his wisdom. We're ready to hear from people who might have a word to speak to us that would be guiding us in the way of God. It's, it's easy to just get distracted, especially when, when we're in the middle of trials. It's fascinating how these three realities go hand in hand. If you think about being quick to hear, if you're quick to hear, it would be really hard at the same time to be quick to speak. If you're quick to hear, it would be really hard at the same time to be immediately fuming with anger. These, these go hand in hand. And the, what James warns us about is that our anger, though it may be easy, though it may be our natural tendency, is actually dangerous. It's not gonna produce anything good in us. In James 20, the specific things, in verse 20, the specific things that he says about it is that it does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But anger is still somehow very attractive to us. I think that one of the reasons that can be is because anger can actually be really therapeutic. What I mean by that is it can make you feel good. It can do something for you functionally. There's a reason that we go to anger. There's a reason that we would become angry, especially in the midst of trials, especially in the midst of difficulty. And one of the reasons that we might become angry is because it actually feels really good. There's things that we want to present about ourselves, that we want other people to see us in a certain way. We want to control. We want to be able to shape life the way that things should be. And when that doesn't happen, we can feel angry. And we can feel justified in our anger, like I'm right to be angry right now. I should feel angry. You have wronged me. Or God, you have wronged me. I deserve to be angry. And we hold on to anger, it can feel good because it makes us at the same time feel like we're right. We're justified in our anger. I deserve this. I'm right here. Don't you see? It can be therapeutic in that way. It can be a defense. It can be a defense of, against feeling hurt or feeling like we are wrong in some sort of way. So I think about it in my own life. I hate being late, but I actually think I hate being perceived as late. So I don't know what's worse. I, I don't know if I mind being late so much as I don't want to be someone who's perceived as late. Because if I'm perceived as someone who's late, then I'm afraid someone's going to think, you're not competent. You don't have things together. You're not, you're not able to take care of the things that you're trying to take care of. You're not responsible in your life. 
Those are the things that I'm afraid of. And so if someone makes me angry, if some, or if someone makes me late, if something makes me late, I can be frustrated at traffic, I can be frustrated at someone in my life, but the reality is, am I just scared of being seen as something that I don't want to be seen as? Am I afraid of being incompetent? Is my anger actually therapeutically doing something for me? It's easy for it to be a sort of self-defense. And John Stott, as a theologian, says it this way. As he's comparing our anger to God's anger, he says this. In short, God's anger is pulls apart from ours. So he's saying they're not the same. They're very different. What provokes our anger, injured vanity, never provokes his. So often my anger comes as my vanity is injured, as my, as my expectations of how life should conform around my wills and desires is injured. And yet, what provokes his anger, evil, seldom provokes ours. So what is it that provokes the anger of God? It's unrighteousness. It's evil. It's injustice. Now, I want to be clear. It's possible that we have righteous anger. When we live in a world such as the one we live in, there are true things to be righteously angry about. And it would actually be somewhat of a scary thing if you were never angry or frustrated. You might just be way too dis detached from this world if that's the case. If there was nothing that ever provoked you to anger, no injustice, no suffering, no hardship that ever provoked you to anger, you might need to open your eyes. But the question we want to ask then is this. How do we know the difference between a righteous anger that is like God's and an unrighteous anger that is the anger of man? How do we test that out? You're going through something in your life. You, you feel the anger welling up within you. What do you do to discern in that moment whether it's from God or not? I think it would probably just be helpful to pause and, and maybe just ask a couple questions. Here's a couple questions you could ask. Am I quick to anger or how quick am I to anger? How short is my fuse? Is my fuse like something happens and I'm immediately ready to snap? I'm immediately ready to go off. We've all probably had those days where you wake up and you're just ready to be offended or hurt or frustrated. You're just waiting for the first opportunity to be offended. Proverbs 24, 29 says this though. It says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. James tells us to be slow to anger. Proverbs 24, 29 also says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. It takes great understanding to be slow to anger. But on the contrary, he says, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. It's, it's not hard to be quick to anger, but it takes great wisdom to be slow to anger. So we could ask the question, how quick am I to anger? That, that might give us some insight into what's going on. Is my anger ready to be triggered over and over again throughout the day by thing after thing. Another question we could ask is, what is the fruit of your anger? Meaning, what results from your anger? Is your anger producing something healthy? Is it transforming you in a healthy way? Is it transforming the people around you and the world in a healthy way? Or is it merely destructive? Does it build up or does it tear down? Say, say if you were to confront someone over some sort of an issue that irritated or bothered you, when you confront them, do you slam the door in their face so that there's no hope that they would be reconciled to you afterwards? Or do you leave the openness of, okay, there's mercy, there's grace, there's kindness, 
that allows for upbuilding. So what is the fruit of your anger? It's interesting that in James 1.20, the specific thing, and you could underline this, that James critiques the anger of man for is, not, is that it does not produce the righteousness of God. Here's where it's flawed. It does not produce the righteousness of God. But you can contrast this with James 3. In James 3, verses 17 to 18, James tells us what does true wisdom from above look like? He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Fascinating how he talks about how it's open to reason. It's full of mercy. It's not vindictive. It's not the slammed door in your faces. It's open to reason. It's, it's not, and it's full of mercy. And then he says it also produces a harvest of righteousness by those who sow in peace. There's good fruit that can come out of it. But the reality is much of the communication in our world does not operate in this way. Much of the communication in our world can operate without gentleness, with, without openness to reason, without mercy, but rather with, with a vindictiveness, an unwillingness to listen, and a self-righteousness. You're wrong, I'm right, I'm putting myself above you through this. I think this is part of the reason why so much of our news now comes from comedians. Because we kind of like someone who has some snark who can put down someone who disagrees with us. We like to feel right, we like to be put over others. It's the danger of anger. And there's something about anger that just catches our eye and draws us in. My friend gave this example. It's like if you're scrolling through Facebook and you come up, uh, across a heavy, you know, some heated dispute among your friends, don't you kind of just want to pop a bowl of popcorn and sit down and read that? There's something about anger that draws us in and we say, oh, I, I want to see what's going on here. It's much more attractive than the other 30 posts that you just scrolled past. There's something attractive about anger. And so here's the concern. Here, here's, here's the encouragement for us as Christians. Both the message that we give as Christians is different from the message the world gives. I mean, there's many ways that we're going to disagree with the world on a number of issues. I mean, you could think about that. What does the world have to say about wealth? What does the world have to say about uh, your success in your career? What does the world have to say about family? What does the world have to say about uh, sexuality? There, there's a number of areas where we're gonna disagree with others because of the word of God. But there's also a way in which we disagree that is distinct. And what we can't do as Christians, we can't merely take the message of the gospel, the message of God's word, and just put it in the packaging of our world. Even, even among Christians, if, if we're right on an issue, we're called not just to a, a vindictiveness, a quickness to anger, but actually a sort of humility that goes with that, an openness to reason, a kindness, a mercy, a patience, so that fruit would come about through our lives. Harvests of righteousness would come about through our wisdom. And this is the life that we're being called to live out even in the midst of the trials and the many difficulties that James is talking about that we'll go through in the Christian life. And so we're given God's wisdom about how are we to interact with our anger? How are we to listen to God in the midst of difficulty so we don't become embittered, frustrated, irritated, 
how do we become slow to anger? But what's incredible as you go on is we see that we're not only given wisdom from God that stays far from us, but in verse 21, we're actually told that we're given God's word and that God's word actually dwells inside of us as Christians. So this is what verse 21 says. It says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And you could circle in your journal there, you could circle that word put away. This is something we're commanded to do. We're commanded to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Then we're told this, and receive with meekness. That's again one you could circle. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So we're told to do two things here. There's something we're to put away, and there's something to we're, that we're to receive. And what we're to put away is all filthiness and rampant wickedness. In James 2, the author uses the same word filthiness here when describing a poor man coming into the gathering of Christians. And so this is a brother in the faith. He comes into the gathering of Christians, and he's wearing shabby clothes, which is the same word filthy. So he's wearing these shabby, filthy clothes, And he says in that context, what you should do is you should not discriminate based on the wealth and status of your brother or sister in the faith. Don't treat them as less because they're poor and show favoritism to the person who's rich. Don't look at the outward appearance. But here, James is doing something different. And he's saying, what you should do, here's what you should focus on. Here's what you should concentrate on. You should get rid of your moral filth. You should get rid of the unfilthiness of your way of lifestyle before Christ. In the imagery of something like this, it's the casting off of the filthy clothing. Get rid of the filthy, immoral ways that do not belong to your new life that is now in Christ. These things that you used to go to, perhaps in trials you you find yourself tempted to go to old ways of life, to old comforts, whether that be a substance, whether that just be media or entertainment, whether that be an attitude or disposition, bitterness, frustration, anger. He's saying, no, no, you cast off these old ways of life and instead, instead you receive something in its place. And what you receive with meekness, with humility, is the implanted word. It's interesting here that the word is implanted word. It doesn't seem to be referencing something external to us, but something inside of us. And James has talked about this wisdom from above, but now he's, he's talking about an implanted word, something inside of us. And so what is he referencing here? One illustration that I've heard for this that I found is really helpful, how we think of the word of God in us, is it's, like, it's like the breath in our lungs. The life is there. The breath is there. You're supposed to receive the life that you get from that breath in your lungs. You breathe in and you receive the life that comes in you. The breath is already there and you receive it. It's an image like that. God's word is inside of you. It's at work within you. It's giving you life and energy and sustenance. It's providing and producing something in you. So what James is saying here is that God's word is actually not just something you hear, but something that becomes internal to your being, something that becomes internal to who you are. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't need the Bible, whether you don't need to read the word of God or anything like that, but the point is probably something more like this, that God is transforming you internally in your heart. 
on your deepest levels, his word is at work within you. And so you should receive with humility what God is already doing. Now, practically speaking, I think what that means is that when you go into a temptation, when you go into a trial, you are not left hopeless. But actually, as you go into that difficulty, God is already at work internally in your heart to transform you and to give you the strength that you need to endure. So you say in the middle of that, God, would you help me? Would you help me turn away from this, whatever I might be going to, whatever ease or comfort or sin, old way of life I might be going, would, would you help me turn away from that? Would you help me receive your word? I know that you're already at work within me, that you're not far from me, that you're already working to transform and change my heart. Would you help me receive humbly right now, your power to persevere in the midst of this trial, this difficulty. I think that's what it means to receive with meekness the implanted word, to know that God is already at work transforming you from the inside. It's possible here that James is also referencing uh, Jeremiah 31. And there's this hope in the Old Testament that God's going to write his law, and this was always God's plan, that his law would be written upon the hearts of his people. And in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, God makes this promise that he's going to write his law, his word upon the hearts of his people, that he will be their God and they will be his people. So it's possible here that James is referencing this hope that God is going to transform his people, writing his law on their very hearts. Whether this is a reference to Jeremiah 31 or just a reference to God's word being inside of the point is this, that we actually work and we fight for holiness, for a transformed life as Christians from the power that God is already using in us or at the work that already God is doing in us through his word, the way in which he's transforming our hearts. And this might be the only time where the advice, listen to your heart, is actually somewhat helpful. God is actually transforming your heart. Yes, the heart can be deceitful and wicked, but God is actually committed to transforming the very hearts of his people and bringing about transformation. That's what we see in this idea of this implanted word. Now, James is a really interesting book. It's very different than many of the New Testament books for a few reasons. One is it makes no explicit mention of the word gospel, which is somewhat interesting. So the word gospel, as that word never comes up, uh, there's actually no mention of Jesus' death in the whole book. And there's also no mention of Jesus' resurrection. And to add to that, Jesus is actually mentioned by name only twice. Though there's other references to Jesus in the book of James, just not by the name Jesus or Jesus Christ. Now this has led some people to say, Where's the gospel in James? Where's the message of the gospel in the book of James? It doesn't seem to be present, some have said. How do we answer that? One way to think about that is is think about the motivation that James is already giving us. He's saying God's word is in you. It's transforming you. He's giving us commands that are very much in line with the logic of the gospel. This is the work of God in you. Therefore, live a transformed life. But also, if you struggle to see the gospel in the book of James, I encourage you to look at James 1.18. It is an incredible verse that we touched on briefly last week, but it just makes so clear 
the message of the gospel. And it makes so clear the power of God's word to save and transform God's people, especially as you put it with verse 21. So this is what James 1.18 says. Of his own will, you could underline that one if you want, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. So he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. When it talks about of his own will, it means this is God's gracious mercy. It was nothing within us. It was nothing that we deserved, and it was actually God's initiative to move towards us. It was of his own will. It's important to know that the Christian life is always a response to what God has first done for his people. It's always a response. It's always God first acting and moving towards us to bring about life and transformation that leads to all that the James, book of James is going to lead us to live out, wisdom in the Christian life. So it's of his own will that he brought us forth by the word of truth. And this word of truth is most likely here a reference to the gospel. If you look in Ephesians 1.13, the same phrase is used and it says, In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so what is the word of truth? It's the message of Jesus. It's what we remember this morning as we take communion, that Jesus Christ came into the world. He lived this perfect life in our place. He went to the cross, though he was undeserving of death, and he died in our place. He rose from the dead, and now he gives eternal life to all who come to him. This is the message of the gospel. This is the word of truth that gave us life in the first place. And it was God's gracious will, his design, that he would give us life through the word so that we would be a kind of first fruits of all his creatures. Term first fruits refers to this idea of this. If you have a crops, you go and you gather the first fruits, the first of the harvest, but there's more harvest to come. And the image is something like this. You, as a Christian, are the first fruits among God's creatures. God is doing something new. God is doing a work in the world. And the, the preview, the glimpse, the first fruits of that is his people. It's his church. It's his church. We are the first fruits of the new creation. All things, as we look at scripture, all things will be made new. We hope for the day when God returns, when Christ returns from heaven and all things are made new. And our prayer is answered, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We wait for that day. But the first fruits, the beginning of God's work is actually us as his people. So maybe you don't think much of yourself as a Christian because you know your own struggles, you know your own weakness, you know your own inadequacies, you feel the trials of life right now, and this doesn't seem fitting to the hope that you have of what you're called as first fruits, doesn't seem fitting to what you're going through in your life right now. But what an incredible promise that this is our identity. This is who God sees us to be. We are the first fruits of his new creation. We are the first fruits among his people. That's who God is calling us. And I just want you to notice the logic of the gospel. This is who God has made you to be. This is who God has made you to be. He has made you his first fruits. And therefore, we are to live out 
all that God calls us to. Because we are the preview, the glimpse of what God is doing in the world. We are members of his kingdom here and now as the church. What's incredible is is as you look at verses 18 to 21, you see the power of God's word in the whole Christian life. The power of God's word to verse 18, bring us forth. And you can write this on the side of your journal. These are the things that God's word does. It brings us forth. It gives us birth. It gives us life in the first place. It's through God's word, through his will, that we were given life in the first place. But then look at, get in that verse 21 and think about this. Not only does God's word bring you forth, but now, you can write this as well, it's implanted in us. God's word has given us life in the first place, and then it's implanted in us so that the whole Christian life is guided and shaped by the word of God. We, we cast off sin. We, we put sin to the side as we receive with meekness this implanted word. God's word gives us life, and then it also guides us in the Christian life. And then at the end of verse 21, we see this, that God's word, which has implanted us, is also able to save your souls. It's able to save us. So from beginning to end, the Christian life is guided, molded, shaped by the word of God, and it's God's grace and mercy through and through to give us this life. Now as we leave today, there's no doubt trials, temptations, difficulties that we'll all go into. Maybe some of those are on your mind already or in the middle of church today. Okay, here's, here's what I'm going through right now. Here's the difficulty. Here's, here's a temptation I'm walking through. Here's grief I'm walking through. Here's a hardship I'm walking through. As we leave today, we will go through all sorts of various trials, as James calls it. And maybe it's helpful for us as we go into this week, as we step into those trials to evaluate what is, what is our position right now? We're called to be quick to hear. Where are we? Are we in a position where we're able to hear from God's word? Have things been happening that have been distracting you, filling your mind, filling your heart with bitterness or anger? Are there trials that are keeping you from hearing the word of God? See, in a trial, you'll, you'll either be softened by that trial and able to hear from God, or it's very possible for that trial to also make you embittered and hardened. But God is able to humble even your hardened heart right now. So the question we want to ask to begin with is, are we, are we listening? Are we hearing? Are we ready to hear from God? Another question we could ask is, are there other things that I'm turning to in the midst of these trials? In the midst of what's going on in my life, are there things that I'm turning to other than God? Are there old comforts? Are there old things that I'm going to? Am I disappointment? Am I going to anger? Am I medicating this somehow? Whether through anger or bitterness or through actual substance abuse, what, what am I going to? And the final question would be, what might God produce in us? To know that God is committed. He's committed to transforming and shaping his people. And to ask the question, God, what might you produce in me through this season? See, the trials that we go through as Christians, they're not just happenstance. They're not just random chaos going off in our lives. They're the intentional design and purpose of God to make us more like Christ. 
It's very easy to want to short circuit that and not want to endure through the trial. But in your life, if you're going through a trial right now, it might just be worth asking God, what might you be seeking to produce in this? How can I, by listening, share in that work that you're doing? Let's pray. God, I pray as we leave today, I, I don't know what everyone is going through in here. We know, I know some of the trials and the difficulties that many have gone through in grief and pain and suffering and loss and hardship and struggles with temptations. Yet, Lord, I thank you that you know each one of our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that you would discern our hearts. You would discern our minds. That your word, which is living and active, would cut and shape and mold and give hope. Lord, I pray that we would submit ourselves to you, knowing that you oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. Therefore, I pray that we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand. Lord, I pray for your church, which I know is going through trials across the world. Pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and Russia and across the world in various trials and difficulties. Would you give them the strength that you alone can provide in their time of need? Would you give the men and women here the strength that they need in their time of need? Lord, would you give us great joy knowing that you're committed to bringing about joy through our circumstances? So Lord, we love you. Thank you for your faithfulness. We praise things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.